From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up next on Forum this morning, for all the talk about the prosperity of the tech boom, more than a third of Bay Area jobs pay less than $36,000 per year. Forum looks at what the current economic boom means for low- and middle-income workers as part of KQED's Boomtown series, examining the effects of the Bay Area's economic surge. And that's up next after this. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Good morning and welcome to the second hour of this morning's forum program. Well, as the old cliche has it, the rich may still be getting richer and the poor poorer. uh, But uh, this economy, in light of the tech boom, has been going through major changes. And in the epicenter of the tech boom, this Bay Area, the economic effects are widespread, as well as continually trickling down for some, but not for others. In this Forum Hour, as part of our ongoing Boomtown series, we want to focus on the effects of the Bay Area economic surge and what it means, especially for jobs and wages for low- and middle-class workers, and joining us in studio. Let me introduce who we have with us. Derek Amerens is Executive Director of Working Partnership USA. She joins us in studio. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. Glad to have you. Also glad to have Enrico Moretti, professor of economics at UC Berkeley and author of The New Geography of Jobs, and welcome you back to Forum. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. And we'll also say good morning to Egon Turplan, who's here with us as well, who is regional planning director of SPUR, and I'll welcome him back in a rather unusual fashion because he was one of our first interns about 20 years ago and uh, actually wrote a history of the Forum program, such as it was only about a year old at that time, which I still have, I want you to know. Uh, Egon is now regional planning director for SPUR. Glad to have you. Good morning, Michael. Thank Good you morning. for having me. Let me, let me actually begin with you, and, and, and let's talk about, I mean, because Spur put out a whole report in October, and want to give listeners an essence of uh, what was in there. Again, go right to the heart of it here. I mean, we're going to talk in, in due time, certainly, about uh, monetizing skills and renting out assets in this, what's been called peer economy or collaborative economy or on-demand economy, but the fact is, um, there are those kinds of jobs, but what, what really can be done to increase wages and job opportunities, especially for low- and middle-income workers? Well, great. Thanks. I mean, I should start by saying that SPUR put out this report in, in partnership with a, with a number of organizations, including Working Partnerships and other groups. So we, we came together to try to get a sense of what's happening in the Bay Area economy. And what we realized is that there's been a lot of growth at the top, and the Bay Area has been very good at, at adding jobs at the top. But there's a big share of the workforce at the bottom, and they're having trouble moving up into that middle, and that middle is declining. This isn't unique to the Bay Area, but it certainly is a big challenge here. And what we came to is sort of a three-part idea. One is that we got to do a lot better job of getting people who are in lower-wage jobs onto pathways to move up into that middle, give them the specific skills, connect them to the jobs, digital literacy. But then that middle is declining. So one way to grow that is actually to make sure you have economic growth because it declines even more during a recession. But then finally, you see that there's a lot of those jobs at the bottom that that are going to be around. They're not going away in the future. And wages there have been declining relative to inflation. So you actually have to lift up the conditions 
and quality of those jobs at the bottom, we have a number of strategies. Think of the local minimum wage that you see in a number of cities or other measures that try to make sure those low-wage jobs become better. Those are policies we can and do within the Bay Area. So there's actually an erosion of wages at the bottom. And the middle, too. Since 2001, they're they're growing, but they're growing slower than inflation. But there are a number of Bay Area projects. The Nova Project, for example, Mm -hmm. that are really taking this on. And uh, we'll hear from Derica about uh, working partnerships. I mean, lots of things are happening. But moving the needle, and moving the needle in a significant way is really the challenge. I think there's many, many projects all across the region, but too too often they're one-off. And we don't yet have the systematic approach to try to overall reshape the conditions for jobs. And so what you see is all this experimentation at the local level. But probably the next phase is to try to connect four or five cities together so that they all set a common minimum wage, or they all set some consistent policies, and then you can really lift something up together. When you're talking about minimum wage or you're talking about living wage, I mean, how does that boil down in the Bay Area in terms of actual dollars? Well, minimum wage is a a policy that would be set for everybody within a labor market. A living wage is a policy that would apply to government contractors for the city. But if you're getting at actual numbers, when we looked at it in this report, we determined that 18 bucks an hour was a number that we could say that's the that's the lower rung of a middle wage job. Now we all know it's going to be tough to get by in 18 bucks an hour in many parts of the Bay Area, but there's a fully 1.1 million workers earning that number and less. Some would say at that rate of pay it would be impossible to live in the Bay Area or certainly to rent. But or there's buy a many home. many people that are doing that and I think that that's that's part of the reality we face when we try to tackle some of these challenges, that there's a large number of people that are in that place. So tackling the challenges comes down to, I mean, is there a triage? Is there a hierarchy of what's most important? I would say it depends on the specific goal you're getting at. We need to maintain a competitive economy in our region because in a recession, things get a lot worse. So if you, the preconditions are making sure you have job growth, investment, better infrastructure, make sure we build housing. Those are the fundamental challenges. But we can't leave behind the folks that are there at the bottom. And those policies on their own don't necessarily lead to wages rising at the bottom. And so the triage means focus on the economic growth, but make sure folks at the bottom lift them up and then really continue to improve those kinds of workforce programs that we're doing that give people a step from a $12 job to a $14 job, $14 an hour job and up to something that's more closer to a middle. And again, Egon Terplan is Regional Planning Director of SPUR. Enrico Moretti is Professor of Economics at UC Berkeley. His book is The New Geography of Jobs. Um, you have all these uh, new opportunities. People talk about Uber being, you know, prime example. People love to bash Uber, but they also used to seem to like to use it as a prime example of uh, temporary income that can be used. Um, but all, all, a lot of this is just dependent on how stable the economy is, right? I mean, it's boom and bust. Sure. Um, Uber has essentially two effects on Bay Area workers. First of all, it increased a little bit the demand for for drivers. Uh, of course, we had taxi driving before, so it's not doesn't double the number of driving jobs, but it increased a little bit. But most importantly, it changes the mix of workers, and it allows some workers who would not have been in industry uh, otherwise to to drive uh, at their own hours and uh, with more flexibilities. And this is particular particularly important for women and for workers who have other activities that they're, they're doing, for example, studying or, or practicing some other activity. Um, it, it, it's, generally, it's good. Uh, it's, of course, 
right now, uh, it's a good time uh, to be in that industry in the sense that there is a plenty of demand. Uh, the question will be when the economy slows down and when there is a, if there is a bust, then what will happen to these type of jobs? Because, of course, those are the first jobs to, to go. Uh, well, jobs across the whole sector tend to improve. I mean, there, there are simply more jobs in a boom, including these kind of jobs that we're talking about that uh, can be taken on demand or freelanced out. Uh, only 20% of Bay Area jobs are in the tech field, though, right? Yeah, most people think that everybody in San Francisco works in tech. The reality is that tech workers are a small fraction of overall employment. Uh, depending on how you measure it, it's around 20%, which means that 80% of San Francisco workers are not in tech. But when you look at the, at the data, what you see is that the employment of workers outside the tech jobs really follows the fortunes of the employment in, in the tech sector. For example, we had a boom in the 80% of jobs in, in services outside tech during the previous dot-com uh, boom, the late 90s. We had a bust when the tech sector went away, so service jobs really went away. And then we have a resurgence now uh, in, I call it the multiplier effect, because really what it means is that when tech grows, it generates jobs, it generates demand for jobs outside the tech sector in, in the local service sector. And they they really are jobs for a broad and diverse group of workers. Some are non-professional jobs, uh, for example, the Uber drivers and the, the waiters and the and the car the House cleaners on demand. I mean, yeah. you have apps for just about any kind of worker now, don't you? And some of them are actually professional jobs, real estate agents and uh, nurses and uh, architects and, 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 and teachers and lawyers and doctors. All these jobs are essentially selling a service to um, to uh, to the local economy, and therefore their demand goes up and down with the fortunes of the local economy. But when we talk about the fortunes of the local economy, we're really talking about tech for the most part, aren't we? I mean, just like Detroit was tied to, car, tied to cars or New York to the financial sector? That's right. That's the real engine right now that, that generates uh, the demand for, for everything else. And again, Enrico Marate's book is The New Geography of Jobs. He's professor of economics at UC Berkeley, and Derek Amarens is executive director of Working Partnership USA. About the concern about uh, this piecemeal labor, uh, Derek, I mean, it's a sharing economy, all these sites and all these apps, and uh, people may be getting extra work. That's a good job. But what about workers' rights? What about minimum wages and all those kinds of things? Healthcare. Huh? Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, the sharing economy is one way to call it. We like to call it the gig economy. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that, that we've seen um, as the uh, this low-wage recovery has taken place, because that's essentially what we've seen in the data, um, is that the old employment contract is uh, different now, right? And so in the gig economy... Uh, a question raised by organizations like ours is the old employment package used to be you get a job, you get some measure of earned sick leave, health benefits, maybe a 401k match, right? And in this new gig economy, those other residual benefits don't exist. And so, but the costs are still there, right? And so as we look 10, 20, 30 years out, you know, the answering the question of who's going to pay when that worker gets sick on the job. Do they have workers' comp? Do they have the right health care mix? And the answer really leads to taxpayers, right, the, the public. And so if we're going to reinvent the employment contract, we have to really think about what the effects of the economy are and how we extract the costs uh, from, we would say, profits to 
to pay for some of that. Well, this gig economy, as you call it, is essentially leaving middle-class Americans out, isn't it? That's exactly right. I mean, if you look at the Bay Area economy and you want to visualize it, I think the best visual is an hourglass economy. I think folks have heard that before. At the top, you have a small number of relatively good jobs for highly educated workers. Uh, you've got a growing um, uh, lower class service worker um, service worker jobs, 1.1 million workers in the Bay Area, low income workers, and a hollowing out of the middle. Um, and the tech-driven economy, um, as Professor Moretti uh, just stated, does create residual employment. And as Egon said, growing the economy, growing the number of jobs is a good thing. But, but we have to ask the question, who's receiving the benefit of that growth? And the vast majority of workers in the Bay Area are not. Uh, and that's particularly true for workers of color and women workers. Also, I was struck by reading, uh, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with, the UCLA report that's put out by the Anderson uh, economic people down there and talking about job drought at a time when, you know, things are in boom. It seems strange to many people, but also about echoing what Professor Moretti was saying, a bifurcated economy. That is, there are these huge disparities right here in the Bay Area. You've got Santa Clara County, which is right, you know, in the tech boom, and then you've got the East Bay, never the Twain. Well, it's interesting if you go back to the, you know, the, the the peak of the prior recession in 2007, right before the recession, San Francisco, San Mateo, and Santa Clara counties are well above jobs that they had in 2007. But the North Bay is just past where they were in 2007. And we're not talking about the dot-com boom, which was a, in some ways, really an aberration. So parts of the, many parts of the Bay Area are still struggling to come back just to the number that they were at seven or eight years ago. Enrico, you see a lot of positive things, though, in this gig economy, don't you? Well, um, well. first of all, you know, if you compare San Francisco with other counties in the state or outside the state, it's pretty clear that we're not in, a, in an horrible shape. I was just looking at the number this morning. Unemployment rate in San Francisco is half of the unemployment rate in L.A. and is two-thirds lower than the national unemployment. So to begin with... Well, just compare it to the Central Valley of California. I mean, uh, uh, and, and, and the yes, whole Bay Area for that Yes, matter. if you compare it with Sacramento or pretty much any other county in the state, it's, we are... Uh, still uh, an engine uh, of job creation. Uh, 481,000 San Franciscans have a job, which is an all-time high. Um, I want to remind people that five or six years ago, we were really scared about a pretty deep, painful recession. People might have forgotten in the midst of this boom, but there were real serious con- concern about uh, a uh, 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 you know, jobs and, and, and wages. Um, now, I completely agree that the question is who is getting these jobs and how much they're paying. Uh, but I think we should also put these trends in perspective uh, because I don't think the gig economy is specific of now and in specific of San Francisco. Uh, this growth of the bottom and the top and the, and the shrinking of middle-class job it's, it actually occurs pretty much across any U.S. city. In fact, you see it I- even in, in, in many European countries. Um, and it's not something that is created by Uber or by, by, the, by the apps. It's, it, it started in the, in the 80s, really, and has been going on for, for 30, 35 years. Um, it really reflects uh, deep-seated global economic forces. Uh, it reflects the decline of the manufacturing sector that used to provide good middle-class jobs, adding and reflects the increase in the return to human capital, to education. Uh, people with uh, college degrees or master degrees are making 
uh, higher earnings, um, but not just in San Francisco, pretty much across the board. Um, and at the same time, it reflects the increase in labor-intensive service jobs of the type that you know, cannot be outsourced to China or Vietnam, like retail jobs and, uh, and uh, um, um, you know, cleaning jobs and, and, and taxi driving jobs. Service jobs, basically. Service yeah. jobs. Yeah. Derek Amarin, you want to add here? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's a couple of points I want to make, I think, and it's not even disagreeing. I think just think the picture is quite complex in some ways. You know, we have 1.1 million low-wage workers. The, with the economic prosperity strategy data that um, Spur and our organization helped work on, um, allowed us to do was take what we knew about the economy and then forecast out. So we looked at in middle wage job occupations, what, how many um, job openings do we project over the next 10 years um, in those middle wage jobs? We wanted to see are there industries of opportunity where we can uh, try to grow the economy uh, uh, in the right kind of quality job sector, right? Or just kind of what kind of businesses would be receptive to an increase in jobs or to allowing for, for many more jobs? Exactly. Yeah. Well, so the data tells us pretty clearly that there's about 31,000 job openings annually between for the next 10 years. There are 1.1 million low-wage workers. 1.1 million workers don't fit into 31,000 jobs. And let's be clear, even if every one of those workers got a college degree, was trained, there's not a job for them at the end, right, if there's only 31,000 openings. And that, those 31,000 job openings, also includes replacement jobs. Um, and, you know, so... Something if 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 we if we decide that as that we care about what kind of economy future economy we're going to create for our children and I do I have two young children, then I think the question is do we continue Yes, we're doing better than most regions. Let's do let's push the envelope and really think about how do we take what we see what are the strategies we can employ at the regional level to get at um, this this problem and to actually start to. Uh, invest again in middle wage jobs, and frankly, to to upgrade the quality of some of those 1.1 million jobs at the bottom. Because if we decide that we're just going to leave them there, there's not enough. There's no. There's not enough training or education in the world that's going to get them. And let's job. disabuse uh, perhaps uh, a kind of pipe dream that exists and is pervasive. And again, I go to you on this. I mean, this notion that those with uh, poor paying jobs are those in the lower percentages as far as wages through entrepreneurship can come out of it? Yeah, well, entrepreneurship definitely is a strategy you can think about to for some people, but it's incredibly risky. And if you have a small number of assets to begin with, it's not just low wages, but it's off, often low assets, you might risk everything to go to go out on your own. And I think and we, we started talking about a little bit the gig economy. People might pull in bits and pieces of additional money. Piecework was a word that people used mm -hmm. in the old days related to that. But one of the things about low-wage workers that we knew from, from looking at the data, half of the folks are over 35. So there's a, to disabuse of another myth that's out there is that a lot of low-wage workers are teenagers working the minimum wage and they're going to move into other jobs. Half of the workers in the Bay Area are over 35, are in these jobs for their entire careers. And if I go back to you, Derek, just uh, these uh, – what middle-class jobs have particularly disappeared and where are the middle-class jobs going? What, what, what accounts for the hourglass? Well, I mean, the, the the we have moved from a manufacturing economy to a service economy. I mean, that I think is the big. That's a the, fact. The, yeah. That's a fact. Yeah. Um, and when that happened, it drove this uh, race to the bottom and this this huge this growing low wage 
sector because the service sector is a low-wage sector. It's also allowed for innovation supposedly to replace manufacturing though, right? That's right. That's why I asked again what I just did. That's right. And that's an asset that we can draw upon as we think about solutions to the regional economy. But the service sector doesn't have to be a low-wage sector, right? There are billions and trillions of dollars being earned in many of these occupations and and industries. And the question then is, how do we um, raise the floor? Because the floor, frankly, at the state level is not enough in the Bay Area with regional housing costs and cost of living. We do have to raise the floor. Um, And then what can we do? And by we, uh, frankly, it's going to take the public sector as well um, to induce business to create some standards for, for example, for its uh, service contracts. If the tech sector decided today that instead of employing the lowest bidder for its janitorial, its its uh, security officers, landscapers, food cafeteria workers, and shuttle drivers, its service sector, if it decided today that it wanted to actually in- create middle-class jobs and an opportunity for those workers, they could just put out an RFP that said, we're going to sign contracts with work with with employment firms that offer good jobs. I think I'm inferring from what you're saying that there's so much that could be done within the private sector to enhance jobs, to enhance wages, and so forth. It's not being done. That's right. And uh, I go a step further and ask, uh, what's the role of government in all this? Well, I think I mean go- there's government. There's a role for government at many levels, and we're, we'll hear from the president, of course, for the role of the federal government. It has to do with policies around taxes and wages that are set and, and at the state level, investment in education and workforce development and infrastructure. But we know that – excuse me, again, the president is going to talk about economic inequality. He's going to put forth proposals. They're not going to get through this Congress. Right. So we're t- when, well, we, when I ask about government, I'm also asking what can government do in a realistic, pragmatic fashion that government's able to do? And I think that we have to recognize that the, there's a lot, a big role for the federal and state government. Absent them, there's a lot we can do locally. So you can imagine, so, so just take the minimum wage as an example. Voters have passed that in a number of places. City of San Jose has a minimum wage, but the cities of Sunnyvale and Mountain View have passed their own minimum wage, and they're, they're thinking about targeting them all together. So you might have three or four cities that are adjacent to each other that have the same minimum wage. So that's a win for workers because the wages go up, but it's also a win in a sense for business because they have a consistent set of policies across multiple cities. As we come up on the break here, Enrico Moretti, there are realistically though opportunities for new platforms and companies to help workers uh, by creating uh, different kinds of primary and secondary employment, yes? Sure. Um, but but l- let, me build, let me follow up on what can government do, and then I'll, I'll get to your question. I mean, I think one of the main things that government can do at the local level or the state level is uh, uh, invest in the education of, of workers. And I think the main tool there is community colleges. Uh, I, I imagine Obama will talk a lot about it tonight. He will. But uh, it, it's really one of the key uh, uh, well-studied uh, uh, tools that help people move from low-paying jobs to careers that offer the chance of a higher paying job. And uh, it has demonstrated economic returns. Um, it's probably where the public dollar spend has one of the highest return you can think of in terms of future earnings and, and, and also other positive outcomes. Right, we're coming up on a break here, and I want to open the phone lines. I want to ask uh, those of you who are middle or low-income workers uh, what the recent economic boom has done for you or against you. Has it been good? Has it been not good. Is the economic boom actually creating jobs for low and medical uh, income workers is the real question 
that's central to this discussion, and we would like to hear from you. Our toll-free number is available. It's 866-733-6786. You can join us now again at 866-733-6786 or email us, forum at kqed.org, or go to our website, kqed.org slash forum. Click on this segment. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny, and for all the talk about the prosperity of the tech boom, more than a third of Bay Area jobs pay less than $36,000 per year. We're looking in this Forum Hour at what current economic boom means for low- and middle-income workers. It's part of our KQED Boomtown series, examining the effects of the Bay Area's economic surge. And you are indeed welcome to join us. Toll-free number again is 866-733-6786, or email us, forum at kqed.org, or go to our website, kqed. Dot org slash forum and click on this segment. And you can also tweet us. Our Twitter handle is at KQED Forum or go to our Facebook page. And with us, Derek Amarans, Executive Director of Working Partnerships USA, Enrico Moretti, who is Professor of Economics at UC Berkeley and author of The New Geography of Jobs, and Egon Turplan, who is Regional Planning Director for SPUR and Forum Intern Emeritus. And um, Actually, Egan was saying off there, we were talking about the importance of education and how education can increase job opportunities, particularly at the community college level, which President Obama is going to be addressing this evening. You want to talk a little bit more about that, Egan? Sure, see just it? to say, I mean, community colleges are, are, are absolutely a critical role, and they have, they're at the front lines of, of working with workers, or, you know, future workers, as well as connecting with employers. One of the challenges, and just sort of three quick points on that, we have a fragmented system to do our workforce training. We have community colleges, which are great, but there's a lot of them. And they're starting to talk to each other much more. And they yeah. got a little boost from Governor Brown's budget this year, yeah. Right, and, and they're and they've right they've been you know the the victim of budget cuts for. But we also have workforce investment boards all over the region. We have K twelve systems. They're involved in training, and they're not all as coordinated as they as they could be. First point. Second point is that training is critical, but it's also not all of it. And a worker needs to be able to get out and figure out how to get a job and then get the next job, which people call career navigation. And so oftentimes you need to teach people how to do that so it's so they can move up once they get into a good job. And then the, the third point, what you see, the most successful community college programs are ones that have formed a partnership with employers. So what they're actually teaching is curriculum that's going to lead someone immediately to a job and give people paid internships and other things to move up. So there's a lot of a lot we can do, and this is a role for government, as you asked before, here within the Bay Area to change the situation we have. I'm going to go to our callers. Uh, first, though, this, we're talking about a service economy and the shift from manufacturing to innovation and service economy, uh, a really tectonic shift in terms of uh, the economy and how it's moving and the trajectory of it. Just let me give you a little statistic uh, or two here. The number of so-called non-employers, that is businesses with no employees, largely made up of people working for themselves, slipped at the beginning of the recession, but it has soared since, rising more than 10% between 2006 and 2012 to 2.9 million in the state. That's according to the U.S. Census Bureau, and that gives you some idea of just how strong the shift has been depending on the good fortunes of you know, recession versus boom. But the Freelancers Union, which is a national nonprofit that provides health insurance to its members, said its ranks have increased from 46,700 in 2007. That's more than 240,000 this year. Half of the U.S. workforce could be freelance by the end of the decade, the organization predicts. Let's go to your calls. And let's begin with Tracy from San Francisco. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm calling in because I am a gig contract worker and very much a part of this gig economy. Um, I recently left a full-time job uh, in May of last year and have since had numerous contract jobs. 
um, and that includes everything from babysitting to um, more full-time things at startups. And since I've gathered um, a plethora of experience in a lot of different arenas, I'm finding now that I'm looking for really more of a full-time position, um, it's proving very difficult because I have so many short-term contract jobs that really don't see the kind of longevity that employers are looking for. And I'm finding myself with still piece, being able to piecemeal, but having difficulty getting out of that. And it's just a comment I wanted to make. A comment, but uh, are you also looking maybe for some advice from the wisdom of this sure. panel? Derica? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know if I have any advice on how to find a find a good job, but I think your situ- your situation is, is so, I think, what we hear all the time. You know, a quarter of all jobs, of all workers in Silicon Valley, almost a quarter, about 23%, 235,000 workers are in part-time jobs. And not all of those are voluntarily part-time either. And I think, you know, when we think about... Um, Again, education is critical. We have to invest in it. It's underinvested in in this country and in this state um, still. Uh, we, unless we can change the business practices that we are employing to um, create our economy, we're not going to create the number of full-time jobs for folks like Tracy. There was uh, in Forbes and a number of other uh, publications an estimate of about 17.7 million independent workers. Uh, that's people who work at least uh, halftime or contribute. But I never heard until you mentioned it, Erica, the word gig for this economy. I heard all kinds of other synonyms. And, and yeah, I'm struck by that because when I think of gigs, I think of music performances. And I think of something that's sporadic, ephemeral, spotty. Um, and uh, Enrico, comment here? Yeah, I, I think Tracy raises a very important question, probably the most important question in today's debate. Um, and again, I would like to put things in perspective, because it's certainly true that it's not very easy to move up the ladder, especially if you start from a lot of fragmented gig economy experiences. But at the same time, when you compare uh, the upper mobility of workers in the Bay Area with the upper mobility of workers in other uh, regions of the country, you actually see that um, this is an area that does fairly well. Uh, There was a major new landmark study done by some of my colleagues at Berkeley and some of my colleagues at Harvard that measure upward mobility for each city in the U.S. And uh, it ranked, and I think Forum covered this uh, a a, a few months ago, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, The top, the cities that had the highest upward mobility, so the city that offered the most chances to someone like Tracy to move from uh, low-end jobs to high-paying jobs, are number one, San Jose, number two, San Francisco, three, D.C., and four, Seattle. At the other extreme are places like Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Dayton, Ohio. Now, you know, it doesn't take uh, a lot of research to point out that those four cities at the top are going through major uh, tech booms. uh, And part of the economic growth that is... Uh, benefiting the, the, the region is also benefiting the chances of workers like Tracy to move up the ladder. It doesn't mean that Tracy will find a job. I, I don't know what will happen to her, but she's well, certainly It's encouraging off. to hear, though, that these boats are being lifted here more than elsewhere because that's yeah. clearly the case. Yeah. Uh, I want to get another caller on from San Jose. Charles, hi, you're on. Hey, um, I am a security worker. I'm a security officer. I've been working in the area for eight years. Um, I worked at several um, tech companies, and I can tell you um, it isn't the um, the it isn't the engineers 
that are the source of the boom. It's not the um, tech companies. It's the security officers. It's the janitors. It's the people that make it possible for engineers to go to work and to and to do their jobs. Um, but the people who make this happen are being um, um, left out. And if this continues, then eventually the whole system is going to 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 collapse. And I won't have work, and the janitor won't have work, and the engineer who makes the new products will have work here. It's just an unsus- it's just a unsustainable economic system, and it's going to have to, have to change. Charles, could I uh, ask you about your pay and your work conditions? Um, my work conditions, um, basically, I have um, no proper training. Um, I'm not properly equipped. I work in a very dangerous area. I make $12 an hour. Um, there's a lot of gang activity in the area, and I don't have any kind of weapon. I don't have body armor. Um, I don't have anything that actually helps me do my job. All right. I, I appreciate hearing from you, and I thank you for the call. Aegon? Well, I think that, you know, at 12 bucks an hour, that, that that's, you know, there are about 600,000 folks in the Bay Area that are earning those wages, and we know, all know that's that's really tough. I think what you're what you're pointing out, though, a lot of things is the, the change in the structure that we have, that so many companies, part of it is outsourcing these functions. You, should be, you used to be able to start within a company and move up because all those jobs were within an existing company. But now those things are, are, are pushed outside and outsourced. So it's much harder for someone, even if you, you get those sorts of skills and have the connections, to move up with an existing company. And I think it speaks to the idea, and, and it was interesting in your call, you said, I'm a security officer or guard, and you went back and forth. But what if we imagine the idea of a security guard and raise the quality and the training of people that do that work, recognizing its importance, invest in it, add training to it, turn them into security officers and just assume, you know, that's an $18 an hour job or a $25 an hour job, depending where it is, because the people that are doing it so critical, they need to understand computers and look at security systems across the board. And that, I think that's the mind shift that we need to get into, to think of, to look at, look at jobs that we're doing, see their value put money and investment into them, and then the people doing them are going to have access to higher wages, but also they're going to have training to support that and be very productive in what they're doing. Well, we did get a response on our Facebook page to the fact that over a third of Bay Area jobs pay less than $36,000 a year. And let me just read a couple of those comments. One listener writes, not to mention the gender and race inequality when it comes to the level of incomes for these jobs. I feel the economic boom made it worse for some of us. And another writes, not everyone who lives here works in the tech industry, yet when people talk about Silicon Valley, most assume that everyone is on a six-figure income and therefore can afford the prices for homes, rent, etc. However, there are many people in jobs that pay less than $35,000 a year for full-time positions. Example, retail, the service industry, restaurants, and education. This translates into people sometimes having to work at more than one job to make ends meet, and how families are supposed to thrive under those conditions is a mystery to me. Some more of your comments. The listener writes, uh, why are we importing so many low-wage workers when we don't have low-wage jobs? Are we importing poverty? On our Facebook page, again, a listener writes, the economic boom may be creating jobs for low- and middle-income workers, but definitely not at a salary they can live on or support a family with. More of your comments. Uh, disingenuous, a listener writes, uh, Miss Marins to talk of employment contracts that supposedly existed for average income and low-wage workers before the new gig economy emerged. In Europe, employment contracts are standard, but in the United States, contracted employment is a fleeting rarity, occurring only at the very top of the income pyramid. Most U.S. jobs have always been at-will employment with no job security other than what our flimsy anti-discrimination laws allow. That's right. By contract, I sort of meant the... Um what used to come with a quality job. So 
um, I don't disagree that we have way far too many at-will employees in this country. Another comment from a listener. Let me go to you on this, Professor Marty. He says, in response to the statement that tech only accounts for 20% of the jobs in San Francisco, this listener asks, is there any other individual sector in the Bay Area that accounts for more than 20% of jobs? Uh, maybe uh, we can provide a context for the percentage of sectors. Uh, sure. Sir, yeah. Sure. The top sectors are tech, uh, tourism, and you know, related, related industries and services. Um, Two-thirds of the local jobs are in, in local services, and that's a share that is constant across U.S. cities, pretty much everywhere you go. The big difference is in the third of work of, of jobs that are not in local services, and, and, and the more productive and the better paying they are, uh, the more uh, and better jobs in local services you tend to see. So, uh, you know, a place like Detroit, where the Non-service jobs uh, are are car manufacturing jobs, and they're shrinking, and they're and they're uh, uh, with falling wages. The all service sector suffers. In a place like here, where that third is mostly tech, uh, all the other uh, the, the the service jobs tend to tend to do better. Um, by the way, uh, the earlier uh, caller uh, or, or the comment on, on Facebook about wages, it's certainly the case that. Um, Wages of a waiter or, or, or a retail worker uh, are lower than the wage of a computer scientist, for sure. But again, if you put things in, per- in perspective, um, wages for uh, a waiter in San Francisco are higher than wages for waiters somewhere else. I was looking at the numbers this morning. Um, the average wage for full-service restaurant workers in San Francisco is 60% higher than the rest of the state or uh, and, and even more when you compare it with Sacramento or, or L.A. Uh, for cafe workers in cafeterias, which means the people who serve us our cafe every morning, um, 65% more. For people in bars, 75% more. Of course, cost of living is higher here, but wages are also higher. So I think it, there is no question that workers at the low end of the spectrum had a pretty bad deal for, for 30 years. But at the same time, it's not true that workers in San Francisco uh, are not compensated for... Well, comparatively. Again, comparatively. The, economy, the, the economy lifts them up. Absolutely. Egan, you were going to add something? Well, I was just going to add a little bit on the structure of the economy. The, the, I mean, two other big sectors we, we've talked not as much about. One's the public sector. And the public sector, we haven't... That happens through investment that we get through revenue that government generates. That was a, a huge source of middle wage and middle class jobs for, for generations. So that is, I don't know the numbers across the Bay Area, but it's at least 20% when you add in the state and federal government. The other one's health care. And health is actually by far the biggest sector in the city of San Francisco, sitting county, and, and in most parts of the Bay Area, health is big. We don't control how many healthcare jobs there are. And in fact, the Bay Area doesn't even have as many as other regions, in part given the cost. But health is a huge portion of the economy. And there are a lot of high-wage jobs, in fact, in health as well that are, that are part of the overall prosperity. Well, Uber has come up repeatedly in this hour. Um, as I said, you know, it's a favorite uh, bashing target for many people. I just want to read this online comment from a listener. It says, all these new disruptive technologies really just make the, uh, the writers and investors of these apps rich. Uber is worth so much because they take 20% of all transactions. Realistically, they could perform this function for less than 5% of these transactions. So really, Uber and similar companies are just milking the system for 15% for doing pretty much nothing. All these tech companies are just making a select few richer and at the same time making everything more expensive for the rest of us. The death throes are upon the middle class and few seem to care. The real issue is that Americans as a whole are much less about their communities and much more about getting rich, even if their actual chances for getting rich are probably close to zero. 
Let me go to more of your calls, and we'll welcome a caller from San Jose. Jody, you're on. Good morning. Um, I actually own a small construction company in San Jose. The problem that we're running into is finding skilled labor. I actually would like to see a conversation start talking about vocational schools, which we used to have a lot in the 70s and 80s, um, but now there really is no way for small companies to start finding skilled labor. We really need it. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Jody. I, for a long time, felt we had to expand vocational uh, and technological schools, uh, not only so much technological teaching young people how to do coding, that sort of thing, but, you know, if you if, if you got a young person, I heard somebody saying recently, and they want a job, if they have any mechanical abilities, truck mechanics, for example, are sorely needed, and the wages are really pretty high. I mean, there are so many fields like that that really could stand to really increase the number of job opportunities, and let me thank you for that call, and Bring an Oakland caller on. Ethan, thanks for waiting. Join us. You're on Forum. Um, yes, hi. I'm, I'm another business owner like your last caller. And um, I wanted to mention we have over 200 uh, seasonal or um, temporary kind of gig workers. We own a catering company. Um, and, and one thing that really needs to be considered, um, we're, we're, in, we're right on the Emeryville-Oakland border, and um, we were supporters of the new Oakland sick leave and minimum wage um, laws. We already pay everyone over that as a minimum wage anyways. But um, one thing that really needs to be considered is making these new laws as we try to address income inequality uh, simple and and um, easier to comply because, like, we've, we've had to hire a consultant to try to be in, in compliance with the Affordable Care Act, and then we just had to hire an HR attorney to help us figure out how to with the new Oakland sick leave law because it's really vague and unclear in some ways. So um, that's my biggest comment. Yeah, and I'd like to hear, Derek, what you have to say about this. And <clears throat> maybe we could add some comment from you just on the fact that so many of these gig workers don't have those benefits and they have to factor in expenses, transportation, health care, and so forth in terms of just a livelihood. No, that's that's exactly right. And I think I, I would agree with your caller that that a lot of the thought that is going into advocates who are th- spending their time thinking about raising the floor strategies for a region like ours covers nine counties, millions of workers, um, making these laws, um, uh, standardizing them and then educating folks around them um, so that folks like small businesses can really comply is important. Um, but I think to your point, it'll only take you so far because then there's still other jobs that, you know, are independent contractor jobs. They're not going to be covered by minimum or living wage, right? And so one thing we have to remember is that, um, and I think one strategy that answers gets to one of your questions, which is what can the public sector do? Um, public The public sector, don't forget, is a huge market participant. So Santa Clara County, is the second largest employer in Santa Clara County in Silicon Valley, um, the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, And it it procures $2.5 billion worth of goods and services a year. And this year, last year, the Board of Supervisors decided that as a market participant that cares about quality job creation, they they are going to institute a policy and be a, a leader for the private sector as well in saying that for goods and services that we procure, we're going to have standards. We're going to make sure they pay their workers' earned sick leave. We're going to make sure that they have retirement benefits. We're going to make sure that they have um, a fl- they offer their workers predictable and flexible scheduling. Gosh, it almost sounds like human rights. That's exactly right. <laughs> Just to make a quick point, I think with the callers referencing also, it is, is reflective of the structure we have in this region of 100 cities, mm-hmm. and they all go at it 
their own ways in many ways. And so part of a strategy is is trying to do this across multiple cities. And we've said this a couple of times, but it's not just minimum wage laws, it's permit laws, it's housing development, it's transit. De- I mean, each of these policy tools and silos, if we look at it, the challenge is the fact that multiple cities or existing institutions are doing are going about solving them distinct and, and not collaboratively. Yeah, a lot of comments and, and uh, remarks from listeners, thoughts from listeners, which I'm appreciative of. Um, here's one on Facebook. Our listener writes, there is no middle class anymore. You're either rich and poor. I understand, I suppose, how people can feel that way. An email from another listener says, what would help people more than raising the minimum wages to have more jobs that are full-time? Many people now have to work two or three part-time jobs to cobble together a living. How can an employee make a commitment to a company when their employer won't make a commitment to them? And another email from one of our listeners, wondering if the unemployment numbers aren't skewed downward. With all the people now in gig freelance consultant jobs, how are they counted when they get fewer gigs or no gigs? How are their numbers reflected in unemployment statistics? Aegon, can you help us there? Well, I think that, I mean, it depends on how, how they're particularly measured, and I think Enrico can speak to this as well. But there's a lot of people, yeah, that aren't necessarily picked up by these by these pieces. But it's why actually looking at taking existing part-time workers and moving those folks into full-time jobs becomes really critical. Let me read a few more emails here. Listener writes, I'm a 26-year-old worker with a degree from an Ivy League school. When I graduated, I was only able to find minimum wage or unpaid internships for about a year. Since 2012, I've worked as a contractor for what works out to be two part-time jobs. Both my employers, one nonprofit and one private, have been extremely reluctant to add me on as an official part-time employee, even though I have assumed considerable responsibilities in both organizations over the past three years. As a result, I have no benefits for health care, retirement, or otherwise, and there are a growing number of people like me in the gig industry across all job functions. It seems companies are finding more ways to not extend benefits to their workers, such as fast food chains firing uh, full-time employees and rehiring them at part-time below threshold for benefits. This problem is affecting all sorts of workers and all sectors. And Derek, nodding your head vigorously. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. We hear it all the time. And you know, if you're in one of these part-time jobs uh, where you don't have a flexible schedule, how do you get another part-time job, right? And so, what, one national study of 26 to 32-year-olds found that that um, unpredictable work schedules is one of their number one issues. And, you know, if you only get a week's notice of when your hours are, you can't get another job. You can't arrange for childcare. It's really, it's a problem. A few more of your emails. Uh, listener writes, the tech revolution has eliminated manufacturing and routine clerical jobs, but this doesn't mean there isn't work to be done. We have thousands of people in schools, daycare centers, nursing homes who would benefit from increased attention. We just aren't putting money into this care sector. Where to find the funds? More taxes on those who are working at the high-paying jobs and often not providing the care to their own family members that was traditionally provided by women. Jeremy Rifkin wrote about this 20-plus years ago in The End of Work. You may remember when we had him on talking about this. Uh, And another listener writes, this is a great conversation on a subject that is relevant to most of us, and I think the panel really are getting at the heart of the problem. As a middle-income tourism sector worker with an advanced degree, I have found that I don't have the skills to move beyond where I am despite my education. I feel as though I'm just getting by, not getting ahead, and I'm living now at the expense of the future. Many of my well-educated local friends are in the same situation. That's my experience. And Professor Moretti, I mean, we're both educators. Uh, see all the time, I mean, students majoring in economics, your field, literature, my field, they have BAs, distinguished degrees. They go on sometimes for graduate degrees. The jobs aren't there for them. Well, that's true for, for – there's a lot of cases like that. At the same time, uh, on average, it's pretty clear that um, – Workers with a college degree and uh, workers with college degree from the numbers are clear. It, it gives you an advantage. It's kind of a union card. But I'm talking about, you know, making 
decently or more higher income wages? Uh, well, look, the, the, the average wage for a worker with a college degree has increased by 35% in the last uh, 25 years. These are workers with college degrees are doing better and better. I think the real problem is workers with an high school education or, or less. Are you factoring in, though, the difference between those who major in liberal arts? Uh, in That's the, the average. And, yeah, it's an average overall. That's an average that includes... So that includes tech workers and It includes a tech worker and, and, right. and, includes, uh, and includes a teacher and includes nurses and includes pretty much any anyone who has a college degree. Of course, these averages increase more in certain occupations, in certain industries. But the real problem with, with inequality in the U.S., in my view, is is the fact that the, the, the salary for workers with an high school degree or less, or high school dropout, workers with who are high school dropout, has actually declined over the past 25 years in, in real dollars. That's troubling, yeah. Again, you were going to add? Well, I was just going to say that you, that you, I mean, you've got these workers that are at the top and workers at the middle, but it's it's the the challenge is low wage workers actually the prime distinction I think as Enrico's talking about is that they they don't have college degrees, but even those with college, what allows someone to get a job are things like networks and being able to figure out how to move up in a career, and those are things that you might learn it, but you actually oftentimes needs to be taught if you actually don't have those skills to begin with. So so. We can include some of that in how we train people, no matter whether they have a BA or whether they're coming out with a GED program, actually helping people figure out how to navigate through an entire career is one of the key factors to be able to move up. And we'll move on to another caller. Jim, that's you. Thanks for waiting. Join us. Good morning. I'd like to ask your panel, um, what, how successful the local, state, and federal training and retraining programs are. Senator Tom Coburn from Oklahoma wrote a book called The Debt Bomb, and he complained that there are a number of politicians around the country passed bills that got retraining centers and training centers throughout the country. I want to know how successful they are in training people for the jobs of today. Enrico Murray. Uh, it's a very mixed bag. Uh, there's a lot of studies that look at training and retraining uh, programs. Um, they're clearly one of the main tools that the federal government and the state government use to help unemployed uh, and, and, and workers who have who who don't have the skills. And uh, it, it, the results are all over the map. Uh, some studies, uh, s- some programs are, are more successful. Other programs are a disaster. Uh, they, they waste people time and taxpayer money. So. Absolutely. That that's one area where better policies and and more focused programs could actually, even without increasing the amount of money that we're spending, could actually have enormous return for for those who l- learning from the mistakes of uh, of the programs that don't don't work. It, it's 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 a clear. Uh, it's a clear no-brainer. We should. We should. I got certain. Yeah, two things we we learned about this in, in working on the the strategy report. One is that programs that have a strong connection with employers that help define the curriculum means the people that come out of it, their skills are going to be more relevant and they're more likely to get a job. It's easier said than done because yeah. companies are busy, but we we know that 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 actually works. The other one is workforce development is its own silo. And if it could be better connected with all the work we do in economic development at the local level, state and regional level, then you're actually trying to grow the economy in a way that's connected with the kinds of skills people are getting through the workforce programs. And often those two systems aren't talking as much as they should. All right, Agon Turplan, thank you for joining us. Good to see you again. Regional Planning Director now for SPUR, Enrico Murdy. Appreciate you, you being with us. Professor of Economics, UC Berkeley, his book again, The New Geography of Jobs. And Derek Amerens, Executive Director of Working Partnership USA. Thank you, our 
listeners, a reminder that KQED's Boomtown series, uh, our look at how the latest tech boom is affecting the Bay Area, will continue tomorrow morning on KQED News. And tomorrow's story will revisit what happened during the last big tech boom and explore whether we're in for a repeat. We are here with you Monday through Friday and 9 to 11 with an hour repeat at 10 to 11 in the evening. And you can continue this discussion online by going to kqed.org slash forum and click on this segment. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Irene Noguchi, and Tina Larberg. Our engineer is Danny Bringer, and our engagement producer is Amanda Stupai with online support from David Marks. Senior editor is Dan Zold. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.